Green Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. On a fine Good Friday, you are listening to Green Left Radio with myself, Jacob Andwafa, and Zane. Hello. Before we get into the program, I would like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandering land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present and that acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land and this land was stolen and that sovereignty was never ceded. So we have, um, for our Good Friday program, we have a kind of number of guests. We have a full program today. Um, we're going to be copy from 7.15am, we're going to be starting off talking to Ros Ward um, from Socialist Alternative about their um, Easter weekend Marxism conference, um, their Marxism conference that's actually happening this weekend. It started last night and it happened. And it's going to be happening over the Easter weekend featuring a number of different sessions. In fact, we'll talk to Ros Ward to get more kind of detail about all that. Then the second interview is... There was a recent victory um, where a massive AGL gas terminal was overwhelmingly rejected and we're going to be talking in Western Port. I'm actually not completely familiar with where that is actually geographically speaking. should improve my knowledge of Australian geography. Um, but we're going to be interviewing one of the campaigners from Save Western Port about this um, victory. Then at 8.10am, um, we'll, we'll be d- talking with Simone White, who is, um, I think she is a sociologist and a researcher and has previously been the policy advisor to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. So we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with her to have a bit of an in-depth discussion about the more, the more kind of social impacts of the cutting of JobKeeper and JobSeeker. Now, I guess the um, while we're have the start of the program. Um, Zane, is there any sort of news you um, you want to kind of start off a bit of a discussion about? Uh, yeah, there's been a bit of coverage in the mainstream media. I don't think Green Left has covered this yet, but uh, you could expect to see some coverage from us. Um, there is a proposal from the Australian Energy Markets Commission, I think it is. There's all these different acronyms for different parts, but it's basically the regulator that runs the national electricity grid. And there is a proposal coming from someone within that bureaucracy at the moment to put a tax or a levy on exports from people who've put solar panels on their roof and to make them pay a couple of cents per hour. Um, or per kilowatt hour to export solar energy into the grid. Um, now, two cents per kilowatt hour doesn't sound like much, but when you think about a lot of people fork out a bunch of money to get solar panels and then 
they're maybe only getting seven cents per kilowatt hour when they sell power into the grid in the day. And then if you don't have a battery, you're then going to be buying electricity at night for 45 cents a kilowatt hour. So it means that you've actually got to export massive margin more power into the grid during the day than what you use in the morning and at night in order for it to kind of neutralise your power bills, which is one of the big attractions of getting solar panels. Uh, unfortunately, ACOS and the Total Environment Centre have been supporting these reforms uh, under the misguided notion that it's rich people getting solar panels on their roof. Now, it's it's definitely the case that renters have not been able to access the benefits of solar energy, and there is an equity issue there. And it's definitely the case that in Australia we have a housing affordability crisis. But your average kind of house owner out in the burbs is still nonetheless working class and they're just in a large amount of debt because that's what you need to do in modern Australia to get a house. You need to you know, pay the overinflated prices. Statistically, we know that it's not people in Turak getting solar panels on their mansion it's people out in the suburbs. It's it's working class people who are the largest uh, buyers of solar systems, and they do it to save money on their bills. If you're someone who makes two hundred grand a year and lives in Turak, you're not worried about paying your energy bills because you've got plenty of cash. It's people who are in the burbs and they've got a big mortgage, for whom it's an attractive idea to cut their energy bills. So. This is an ongoing debate, and at the crux of it is, do people with solar panels need to give more money to the private operators of the grid so that they can afford, quote-unquote, to pay for upgrades to the grid to let more solar be put into the grid? Uh, now, there's been some analysis at um, Renew Economy, which is this kind of... Um, what would you call it, like a pro-green capitalist blog. Uh, a lot of the politics of Renew Economy I disagree with, but they do have good coverage of the renewable energy industry and a lot of the miniature of these type of issues. And one of the articles published at uh, Renew Economy was a two-part article by Bruce Mountain, who has had experience in... Um, working for the, the kind of the grid regulator in, uh, in uh, Great Britain before he moved to Australia. And now, Bruce Mountain makes two key points. Number one is that PowerCore, one of the private grid operators, they made a submission to the regulator. The, the kind of business model of the grid operators is they say to the regulator, oh, look, we had to spend all this money on upgrading poles and wires and substations, and therefore you need to let us charge people a bit more for their grid. So when you get your power bill, everyone on their electricity bill is paying about a dollar to a dollar twenty per day for your grid connection. Your energy use uh, billing is on top of and, and sort of additional to that. Um, so the 
the whole way that the privatised grid operators work is to is to go to the regulator and say, oh, look, we had to spend all this money and so we need to charge more for everyone's power bills. We need to charge more network fees to be able to cover our costs. Now, the thing is, these companies make billions of dollars a year in profit. It's a little bit opaque and it's a little bit hard to see who's making what, but estimates are in the region of you know, upwards of $2 billion a year that these companies are making in profit. So uh, point A, they got plenty of cash. But point B, Bruce Mountain points this out in part one of his articles at Renew Economy, is that PowerCore made a submission to the uh, grid regulator and they said, oh, we need to spend about... Um, about a billion dollars over the next five years, which represents about... No, I, th- I think it was even less than that. But they basically said, we've got a capital works expenditure program over the next few years, and 5% of our overall expenditure on the grid is for solar. So it's it's a quite a small amount of money. And then the regulator turned around and said to PowerCore, oh, gee, 5%. We reckon you're fudging the numbers a bit there. We reckon it's probably closer to 3%. So these privatised grid operators, point A, they're very profitable. They've got plenty of cash. Their job is to provide a grid. So they need to be reinvesting their profits in the grid. They don't need to ask for extra money from power consumers, from people's power bills to be able to pay for this. They've already got plenty of profit to do that. But point B... The the fraction of money that they're spending upgrading the grid to fit solar in is negligible, and this is the thing. There's no there's no special levy. If you put a whole bunch of air conditioners on your house, there's no special levy to um, allow for upgraded power connections to get power out to your huge set of air conditioners on your house. Having solar panels on your roof, apart from the fact that it provides power in your local area when everyone's using their air conditioners and therefore reduces the need for grid upgrades to run all those air conditioners, um, solar power, it doesn't put a massive extra load into the grid. There are some modifications to substations that need to be made, but we're a long way off um, needing really major grid upgrades to allow more solar to come into the grid. Point B that Bruce Mountain makes in part two of his articles is the big power generators, the big coal and gas-fired power stations, Snowy Hydro, they don't pay anything for their grid connection. So whilst, you know, I've recently, me and my partner have just got solar panels on our roof, uh, and I have an interest to declare here, um, so we're paying a dollar a day to have our solar panels and our roof connected, but um, your lawn power station, they're not paying anything to have their power station connected to the grid. And Bruce Mountain points out Snowy 2.0, this new upgrade of the Snowy Hydro system, that's going to need a grid upgrade to be able to pipe that electricity from the Snowy Mountains down to Melbourne and up to Sydney. Um, 
unlike solar panels, which are feeding energy into the grid, and that energy is then used by houses in the immediate sort of one kilometre radius or two kilometre radius of people with solar panels, Snowy Hydro is literally about as far as possible from the load centres, from the cities where people use that energy, and they're not going to be paying anything towards the $5 billion that it's going to cost to upgrade the grid. So it's... uh, there's a there's a glaring double standard basically. Working class people who get solar panels on their roof, they've got to chuck in for grid upgrades. Massive power utilities aren't expected to contribute anything towards grid upgrades. Um, so yeah, it's inequitable. And in theory, the Australian Greens have a policy of nationalising the electricity grid, which I 100% support, and I think that. Right now is a very good time for the Greens to be waving that policy around. Uh, and unfortunately, they haven't really been saying much at all along those lines. So if, if ever there's a good time to talk about renationalising the power grid, it's right now. Yeah, just to, just to kind of um, make a quick comment before we go into our kind of first interview... I guess my, my sort of reading, because, you know, everything you kind of said was kind of like the first thing I've sort of heard about this kind of policy. This sort of a, this kind of policy, from my understanding, it seems to be a kind of market kind of based policy that is basically about essentially the costs of renewables or renewable infrastructure is basically disproportionately falling on the consumer. And of course, it's tried to, it's, coached in this sort of progressive sort of logic of, oh, well, the people with high incomes will pay for the cost of opening up kind of infrastructure when actually in essentially sense nationalisation actually says, well, actually the state should be actually footing the bill um, for these kind of necessary infrastructures, even if it's, even if there are rich people um, that supposedly, or well-off people that, you know, afford to buy solar panels, I still don't actually think, even as a socialist, they should be the ones to pay the cost. But, of course, as you kind of accurately said, that's not the actual kind of reality of who is actually investing in solar panels and extorting them. They tend to be of people who are of working-class backgrounds, people who do, who just probably might just be a bit richer than the average kind of working-class person, but nonetheless, they're still... You know, they're not necessarily people who are wallowing in massive amounts in inheritance or, or capital. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, so this will be a, a space to watch because Australia has the highest uptake of rooftop solar per capita in the world. There's about 2.6 million people who've got solar panels on their roof in Australia. So this is not the sort of policy that can be pushed through without a lot of pushback from all those people who've got solar panels on their roof and all those other people who are thinking about getting solar panels on their roof. Okay, um, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on 8.55am. It is 7.15am or about to hit 7.16. And um, just play this quick announcement and we'll go on to our first interview.
when I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Green Life Radio on 3CR. And on the phone this morning, we have Safe Schools Program founder and equal marriage activist, member of Socialist Alternative, Ros Ward. Welcome, Ros. Hello, thanks for having me. No worries. Um, so, Ros, we are keen to get an overview of the annual Marxism conference that is happening this weekend. Tell us, uh, yeah, give us a, a broad overview of, of what's going to be happening over the next four days. Yeah, so we've extended for the first time to four days. So we're going across the whole Easter weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and um, which means we've kind of got more time to talk about um, even more things. Uh, so we're very excited about that. But it's also the first time we're linking the conference across four cities. So there's parallel conferences that will be linking up in Sydney and Perth and in Brisbane, unfortunately, um, has just gone online, but they will be there as well. So it's a real um, gathering of left-wing activists from across Australia with people um, contributing as well from around the world. So we've got a great panel this morning of um, South American activists, including um, activists who are part of the Argentinian abortion struggle, to give you a of it, um, as well as Bolivian activists, um, Brazilian activists, uh, and then we've got you know um, people from Europe calling in. We're, I'm particularly excited about Mike Jackson, who was one of the co-founders of Lesbian and Gay Support the Minors in the UK in the 1980s, who's going to be uh, interviewed um, for us at the conference live. We've got Black Lives Matter activist Michael Brown. Um, we've got a rank-and-file trade union activist from France and the struggles that have been going on there. He's a railway worker and unionist. So, um, yeah, and then Gary Foley, who's become a bit of a regular at Marxism, will be back again. And obviously anyone who's ever heard Gary Foley speak will know uh, that those things are unique occasions and you sort of, uh, yeah, you get something new every time. So... Uh, if you want to come and see Gary Foley, he's speaking as well. So the full program and everything, people can check out online. And we're down at Meatworks, which is a beautiful venue in North Melbourne, which has a whole history associated with it too. So, uh, yeah, there's plenty of time and space to just hang out in the venue, talk to other left-wing activists. And, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's a pretty great time. Yeah, nice. Uh, now... Obviously, the main uh, organisation that puts Marx, Marxism Conference on is Socialist Alternative. Are non-Socialist Alternative members welcome? And would you encourage them to uh, attend if, if they are listening? If they're perhaps oh, a bit yeah. Marx-curious or... Yeah, 
Yep, we encourage the Mark Curious, um, and we encourage people who feel like they know a lot about Marxism, um, but uh, they're in, um, they're maybe not in an organisation, or they're, you know, they've decided that socialist alternative is not the organisation for them. That's also totally fine. And so, yeah, we have actually hundreds of people who are not members, and it's a very um, open and welcoming atmosphere. You'll always find someone to talk to if you come on your own. Um, yeah, so, of course, people are all welcome. I think we've sold nationally, we've sold over um, 1,300 tickets in advance of the conference, so there's lots of people there um, and lots of people who aren't socialist alternative members. Hey, Roz, um, just wanted to kind of ask a question, just to give people, a kind of, I guess, a better sense of the conference, because we've just been talking about guest speakers, etc. I kind of just yeah. wanted to hear your general kind of comments, I guess, on the political context that um, Socialist Alternative, I guess, is working from in this conference. Because obviously, last year, we know that the COVID-19 pandemic um, made it so Marxism didn't happen. So I'm kind of hearing... Like, I want to kind of hear your kind of comments on, I guess, the political situation that kind of underpins this conference in terms of the themes that you're going to be, like, some of the recurring themes that will be a feature of this conference. Yeah, well, yeah, it's an incredible time, really, in all sorts of ways, to be having a a political conference. And we're very lucky in Melbourne um, to be able to do it. Of course, many places in the world, you just wouldn't be gathering people together, but while we have the opportunity to do that, we want to be talking about, um, you know, the various strands of crisis, I guess, that are um, currently, uh, t- you know, afflicting people all around the world. So we'll be talking about the climate crisis as a theme throughout. We'll be talking about um, the economic crisis and we'll be talking about uh, some of the resistance. And it's sort of a combination of those two things, really, of understanding um, oppression, understanding um, like Marxist theory and thinking about what we can do to resist. So there's a bunch of different streams that tap into that. So there's a history, rebel history stream. Um, there's a stream looking at imperialism specifically as a feature of uh, world politics and, and how that plays into the, to the various crises. Um, there are um, Organising for revolution sessions, so if you're a bit more familiar with Marxism, some of the debates around how you organise on the left and the different perspectives on that and some historical examples of that um, and some debates that have taken place historically. And then we have a whole session for people who are brand new, a whole sort of stream of sessions for people who are brand new to Marxist politics, so that's our introduction to Marxism stream. And so if you want to kind of sample Marxism um, for the first time and some of the topics that we think are really fundamental then um, come along to those sessions uh, and they're all clearly labelled in the program so you know what stream to follow. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot <laughs> uh, in the program but, yeah, but I think that backdrop of crisis and resistance in the streets um, that is so inspiring We'll kind of try to give you a bit of both. Um, you can pick those through the program to kind of be inspired, but also kind of think more deeply about what, what's going on in the world and try to understand it together with other people. 
And just we we did touch on this briefly, but uh, I understand that you've made the conference so that it could kind of all be shifted online at late notice in case there was another lockdown. Um, has there been any unexpected benefits, I guess, in terms of making the conference pandemic proof, uh, in terms of making it more accessible both this year and for future conferences? Yeah, we've had to increase our technical capabilities, that's for sure. <laughs> um, well, we're on the morning of the first full day, so fingers crossed we'll pull it all up. I'm sure we will. But, um, yeah, you're right. It does make you um, more able to stream in international speakers without having to fly them all out here. Obviously, there's nothing quite like being in the room with, with someone, but we have got a broader range of international speakers than we would normally have just because of the cost of bringing people all the way to Australia. So so that's been really good. And in Brisbane, yeah, we were able to just uh, switch and make sure that people there were going to be safe um, by having it online now for Brisbane participants. And we have a, actually a number of international um, participants who've brought tickets who will be able to just zoom into uh, a bunch of the sessions, which wouldn't have happened before. So that's really good for kind of people who are more serious socialists in other countries who want to join in our conference and in the region. Um, it's obviously the biggest socialist conference. So there's some interest internationally as well, which we can now um, match. So that's really good too. Yeah, cool. And you've mentioned uh, Mike Jackson uh, from Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners. Um, listeners who've seen the film Pride would uh, be familiar with that, but can you briefly just tell us a bit about that campaign and the context uh, back in the 80s, and uh, when is that session with, with Mike Jackson? Um, that session is, let me just double check the program. So Lesbian and Gays Support the Miners um, was set up uh, during the miners' strike against Thatcher in, it's on Saturday at 7 p.m. I thought it was. I just had to check. Um, so, yeah, Saturday night at 7 p.m. Yeah, uh, Mike Jackson in the movie Pride is the one with the little round glasses and the hat, the kind of dorky one, I want to say, but, Mike, if you're listening, I mean that in a good way. <laughs> um, and really what they were thinking, and they were, um, a bunch of them were socialists, but they were thinking about and um, organising around the fact that basically uh, the miners were being attacked by Thatcher and her government um, and by the police for standing up for their rights as workers in the same way that lesbian and gays um, were being attacked by Thatcher through um, the imposition of Section 28 to ban teaching of homosexuality in schools and a bunch of other real uh, whipping up of kind of homophobic uh, messages in the media and stuff like that that was happening in the 80s and the police who would still, uh, you know, frequently raid gay bars and attack gay people. And so they were like, well, you know, our enemies are the same as your enemies. The people who oppress us are the same as the people who oppress you. It makes sense for us to offer our solidarity and, you know, collect donations for the miners and um, organise events and stuff. Yeah, and it was just a fantastic display of genuine solidarity and I think initially they were met with some 
surprise and people couldn't make the connection. But when people did, I think it just became incredibly powerful. And, and um, the National Union of Miners uh, became involved as well eventually and um, were involved in the Pride March, which is depicted in the kind of conclusion of the movie. So, mm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, really have, yeah. moving sort of uh, finish to that film. Yeah. Yeah, and um, coming, <laughs> um, coming out of that, because um, I just wanted to sort of give you just an opportunity to talk. Can you talk about, um, mention some of the international guests, um, some of the highlights in the program in terms of international guests who are going to be zooming in and the particular kind of struggles um, that are kind of happening internationally in relation to um, what struggles you're kind of coming? Because, you know, there's the whole expiring kind of protest movement happening right now against the military group in Myanmar. Will the Marxism conference um, be um, giving kind of voice to some of those struggles? Yeah, well, Myanmar, I think, will be mentioned in many, many sessions um, as an example of struggle and just, yeah, so incredibly inspiring. And that was discussed at opening night last night. And, um, yeah, we have a session specifically focused on that. Um, it's obviously difficult for Myanmar activists to be um, able to commit to certain times and places. They're right in the, like, literally in the middle of things uh, comrade who's been organising um, that session, you know, has had phone calls with people in Myanmar who've had to hang up because there's a raid going on on their house and, you know, literally right in the middle of, of, of that struggle. So, yeah, amazing stuff going on there that I think will be discussed throughout. And then um, some of the struggles in South America will be featured, like I said, uh, Chela Fierro, who's an Argentinian abortion activist and socialist, who's one of the leaders of the struggle that uh, incredibly won abortion rights in Argentina, is going to be speaking, um, and I think that will come up a few times in the in the conference as well. Um, Anas Kazib is the name of the French activist who I mentioned before, who has been involved in in some of the um, struggles there. I mean, France at the moment one of the worst countries in the pandemic, but has, uh, in the last couple of years, had some really huge strike waves, and particularly in the transport sector. Um, so that's going to be, I think, a highlight and really fascinating. Um, we also have an Iranian uh, speaker on some of the struggles that have been going on there, and yet another place in the world where you think to organise resistance um, yeah, just takes incredible courage, and I'm looking forward to hear. I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, Frida Afari, who's an Iranian American researcher. He'll be speaking. I also love Anand Gopal. You probably know him as well. He's a, a journalist who has been in sites of struggle and conflict around the world, but particularly in the Middle East and Afghanistan. And um, he's going to be zooming in to share some of those. Stories and yeah, an anti-war journalist and activist. So yeah, I mean, there's uh, heaps of different things, but um, yeah, inspiring resistance and and something um, that we've just confirmed a speaker from a university in Nigeria that has been on strike, and because of all of the work that we've been doing in the um, higher education sector. 
that's something I'm involved in as well in the NTEU. That's going to be interesting to get some international perspectives from that country and from um, Faisi Ishmael, who is from the School of Oriental and African Studies in, in London. So some international perspectives on struggle in the higher education sector, which may seem uh, not, yeah, which is something that in Australia it's clearly a huge site of, um, well, uh, workers being really attacked at this point and, yeah, a potential site for resistance. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I've heard that uh, strike in Nigeria was a marathon effort. Like three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Um, we're probably going to have to wrap it up. How do people get tickets? Can you just rock up at Meatworks? Do you need to book it through the website? Uh, if people are a bit, maybe have health issues, or just being extra cautious about COVID, how do you zoom in from home or, or whatever? Um, well, yeah, you can rock up at Meatworks um, and get your ticket on the door. And um, you can still buy international tickets um, through the website, through Try Booking. Um, and I guess if people want to do the Zoom access, you, can, you could buy one of those international tickets and you'll get access to that. Um, so that's how that's working. But, yeah, if you want to just come to the Melbourne one... Um, Rock up at, at uh, on Blackwood Street in North Melbourne at Meatworks, and um, I will be on the desk this morning if you want to come and say hi. Yeah, sweet. All right. Well, um, yeah, I hope it goes well, and thanks heaps for um, talking with us this morning, Rose. No worries. Thank you. All right, Rose Ward there uh, from Socialist Alternative and one of the organisers of the um, annual Marxism conference which, as Rose uh, mentioned, is happening at Meatworks North Melbourne in uh, Blackwood Street. So I'm sure you can Google that location. Okay. We'll just go play a quick announcement, and we might spend a bit um, some time discussing some um, Australian news before we go into the next interview. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 855am. The Australian Medical Aid Foundation will hold its 20th annual Charity Radiothon Good Friday Appeal this Friday, April 2nd, between 9am and 5.30pm. This will be hosted over the airwaves of 3CR Radio, 8.55am, by the Tamil Voice Presenters Team. The Australian Medical Aid Foundation provides humanitarian medical aid to vulnerable groups in Sri Lanka, and this year it's aiming to fund a dialysis unit for kidney failure patients in a rural province. Please ring the station between 9am and 5.30pm on Friday, the 2nd of April, and help us achieve our target. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to Green Left Radio, and we were just interviewing Ros Ward from Social Security about um, the Marxism Conference that is happening this weekend. Now, we have 10 minutes until our next scheduled interview for the program. Um, so I thought we'd have a bit of a discussion catching up on some local kind of Australian news that's sort of been part of the dominated the headlines in this kind of past week. I guess the first kind of story I kind of want to talk about is 
in the past week in response to kind of all this pressure from um from people um in response to all this pressure around the whole the wave of kind of allegations of sexism harassment and of rape um, against staffers in the Parliament House and even prominent kind of politicians. Um, Scott Morrison has kind of responded to it um, by saying that he's going to be changing up his cabinet. And so basically he has essentially switched around some people in um, positions. Um, for example, um, he's put a number of um, of the women um, Liberal MPs in prominent sort of cabinet positions, including um, who actually, to be honest, I need to who replaced who in in this in this um, in this cabinet changeover. Uh, I need to double check that. I do know that uh, Amanda Stoker was appointed Assistant Minister for Women, and Australian of the Year Grace Tame has criticised. That appointment, um, because um, uh, Amanda Stoker has previously given a platform um, to and interviewed uh, Bettina Arndt, who's a men's rights activist. Um, and not only has Bettina Arndt basically pushed this kind of rape apologists platform um but she's also literally Bettina Arndt um interviewed the uh pedophile who was convicted of um abusing Miss Tame and I'm sorry because we should have probably given a trigger warning because this is some pretty full-on stuff but yeah like in terms of getting more gender balance in the cabinet okay that's something to aim for but the specific um person who's been appointed assistant minister for women amanda stoker is like a really <laughs> problematic choice as grace tame has uh, pointed out and um just now that i have the information on on right here um so basically the changes have basically been senator michaelia cash has been appointed australia's new attorney general replacing christian porter um, and Senator Cash is also going to be the Minister for Industrial Relations, which I'm pretty sure that was sort of Christian Porter's previous role anyway, or part uh, of it. Um, uh, maybe previous, previous, but um, he was Attorney General. Oh, but yeah. yeah, he was. He was. Um, but he's always played. He's well, always played he? a prominent role in terms of workplace and industrial kind of relations. So yeah, to yeah. be confused um, there. And Foreign Minister um, Marissa Payne will lead the task force of the new ministerial, including women's safety. And oh yeah, we already talked about that one. And the next, the next one has been Karen Andrews has been named Minister for Home Affairs, replacing Peter Dutton. And now Peter Dutton is apparently going to be in defence, um, which I think is a bit amusing. And yeah, and then I think the next, um, the next kind of thing is. One of the, I think, the ridiculous kind of thing is the two kind of politicians who are at the kind of heart of where all the where a lot of the anger has been directed to, including Christian Porter and Linda Reynolds. While they are still both remaining in cabinet and they're still both are both going to have ministerial kind of positions, um, apart, um, with Mrs. Reynolds transitioning into an NDIS 
and government services kind of role. And then, of course, I think Christian Porter now has something, one of the cabinet positions kind of related to tourism. So I think it's also a bit bizarre that um, since this sort of cabinet reshuffle has happened, I've noticed from the media there's far less scrutiny of the Morrison government than there was because it was something that was clearly dominating the headlines. And um, Scott Morrison was getting criticised, I guess, at every single turn by both kind of sides of the media, including... Um, sections of the corporate media so it's sort of like you know my position really is i don't i think this is just a cosmetic change this is not going to mean anything in terms of addressing the inherent systematic sexism that's been at the heart of the parliament house and of course it doesn't change the fact that the liberal party as a party really they're committed to upholding the status quo and the all oppressive facets of the capitalist system that we live in. So it really, it doesn't really matter whether um, um, they've decided to have more gender balance in the cabinet. The political project of these women is still committed to supporting the oppressive structures of capitalism that reinforce them. So it's sort of like, really, this is just a cosmetic change. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it would have been probably been more significant if... Um, and in fact, there's still a possibility that we could, that the movement could push this. You know, what would be a significant victory in the context, political context that we're in, is if Christian Porter was just sacked um, from his role as a cabinet minister and were to step down. Although that said, it's, um, from my understanding, it's not easy. You can't necessarily sack MPs because if MPs are elected, um, not even the Prime Minister can kick them out. The worst, the main thing they can possibly do is that they can just leave the political party that they're part of or be, or be kicked out of the political party by, so they will no longer represent the Liberal Party, etc. But they would still remain a politician because they've been elected. Hmm. Uh, now, another sort of uh, related um, piece of... Federal news is that former federal um, member for Indy from the Liberal Party, Sophie Mirabella, who's like a rampant right winger and and just a really offensive uh, politician, uh, has been appointed to the Fair Work Commission by Industrial Relations Minister uh, Christian Porter. So, um, yeah, that's the... Labor Party has said that should send a chill down the spine of workers. It's uh, it's similar to Trump stacking the Supreme Court in the USA. Uh, you've got the Liberals stacking the Fair Work Commission with, you know, just horrendous right-wingers who will put the boot into workers. So, yeah, that's, that's really bad news. And, uh, yeah, conveniently enough for Sophie Mirabella... Uh, she will be earning a, a, a wage in a, a salary in the vicinity of 400 grand per year. So that's uh, yeah, good good bit of money to get paid to kick the crap out of workers, eight grand a week. Mm. Well, um, we might just go close off this discussion because we're getting in time for our next interview. Um, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Just before we do. Um, if that discussion has brought up any um, issues, you can call Lifeline 13 11 14. Um, unfortunately, it's just the nature of 
covering federal politics at the moment is uh, there's some pretty intense content being discussed. Yeah, you're, um, so yeah, if you if you um, yeah if you found any of the kind of content triggering in any way, definitely recommend um, I'm seeking out those support services. All right, I'll just play a quick announcement and I'll try and get the next interview we've got planned um, organised. You're listening to Green Left Radio. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Okay, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. On the line, we have Jane Kanagi. And Kanigi, who is a so- spokesperson for the campaign group Save Western Port. And basically what has kind of happened, I guess, in the past week is there has been a bit of a victory for the environment movement where essentially there was a controversial gas project put forward by AGL, which is supposed to be in Western Port, which is apparently was supposed to be one of the, the biggest kind of gas terminal that could be built, and it was um, it was proposed um, to be built at Crib Point. Um, so yeah, I'm. It's a it's a kind of an amazing kind of victory that the project has been um, rejected um, by the Victorian Planning Minister um, and the Victorian State Government. So yeah, we're going to be having a bit of a discussion with Jan um, about the kind of background to this and the background to the whole victory. So yeah, good morning, Jan. Uh, good morning, Jacob, and thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Um, it is it is as you said. Um, an extraordinary victory, um, as you can appreciate those of us that have been in this campaign now, some for three years plus, uh, me for over two and a half years, we are just over the moon, um, ecstatic beyond belief. You know, our feet really haven't hit the ground yet. We can't quite believe it. Um, but it is an amazing um, outcome to an extremely long campaign. And I guess can to start off, especially um, for listeners who might not be, I guess, aware much about this proposal, can you give us a bit of a background on what this um, terminal proposal was and then so that we can then go proceed to talking about the campaign and the story Absolutely. of how it was won? Absolutely. Um, well, look, um, essentially what AGL proposed, and I'm sure all your listeners know who AGL is, um, they were proposing to build an import terminal where uh, we would have like an, the equivalent of a floating gas factory known as an FSRU or floating storage regasification unit and that will be moored permanently at Crib Point in the heart of Western Port Bay for over 20 years. 
And then visiting LNG carriers, that is carrying liquid nitrogen gas, natural gas, I should say, uh, would come alongside this FSRU, would dump their, their liquid form of gas into the heart of the ship. And then what the ship would do would be to regasify it. And that regasified gas would then flow along a new pipeline that had to be built by another company called APA, a new 57-kilometre pipeline through some very um, significant uh, wetland and important fragile flora and fauna areas. And um, in the process of actually regasifying the gas, um, what would happen is that the ship would draw water from... Uh, Western Port Bay, um, and in huge quantities, over 480 million litres of water will be taken out of the bay every single day, um, and that includes all of the, you know, the, uh, the benthic habitat, as it's known, all of the plankton, the microorganisms, uh, the fish eggs, the baby fish, all of that would get drawn into, into the ship and then uh, that water will be used as a coolant in the process of turning the liquid form of gas into a gas, and chlorine would be added to that water in the process. Of course, chlorine being an extremely toxic chemical, and then that water would be discharged back into the bay with the chlorine and other uh, toxicants, and it would also be 7 to 8 degrees colder than the ambient temperature of the bay. So I think anyone um, with, you know, half a brain about uh, the e- ecological impact, the environmental impact of such a process uh, could see how dangerous uh, this this particular idea was. I mean, how it really got off the drawing board, I, I don't know, but it certainly got off the drawing board and we had to fight it very hard. So that, in essence, is, is the process that would have happened. And as I said, Jacob, if it had gone ahead, this could have happened day in, day out for up to 20 years. Um, also, of course, ensuring that we had uh, gas in this form for the next 20 years as well. So that has another sort of issue attached to it, as I'm sure you appreciate. And um, what can you tell us, I guess, about the story of the campaign in terms of, like, the type of kind of support that was built up in opposition to this gas terminal? Um, look, a really good question. I think, if you know, in a nutshell, if I could start at the beginning, um, I certainly wasn't there at the very beginning, but there were some, some people in the community who'd heard about this proposal and I think AGL did a first sort of uh, spin on it and they went along to it and they were deeply concerned when they heard what the process was, how long it would be, um, what the impacts were. These were people, just ordinary members of the community, but who had clearly heard something that they did not think was relevant or appropriate to the sort of community that we have, the environment that we live in. Um, and it's, you know, the really fragile nature of, of the ecosystems of Western Port Bay. So they set and trained sort of building up a new organisation, which they called Save Western Port, um, which actually is a name that goes back more than 50 years. There were original environmentalists way back 50 years sort of fighting other sort of proposals, not quite on the scale of this, but pretty, uh, 
hard-hitting proposals that would have hurt the environment. Um, and then they called meetings and got people together and, and really spread the word. It was really about educating our community um, about this uh, potential impost on us and what the ramifications would be. And, of course, as soon as you heard about what the project was going to be, um, really everyone was deeply, deeply concerned. And so it sort of built uh, in amongst the community. Um, uh, more and more people got involved and, you know, we were out there all the time. Every time there was a market or, you know, any sort of public gathering, we'd get there, um, we had stickers, we'd talk to people, we'd educate them. Um, and then we started to build out into other organisations, both here locally around Western Port, including those on Phillip Island, French Island, um, other groups that had fought other battles on the environment. Um, and also Environment Victoria came on board, and that was just amazing because they really have such strong campaigning skills, and we built a collaboration with Environment Victoria uh, with the Victorian National Parks Association um, and just, as I said, with multiple groups. Some of them not environment groups, just community groups really concerned about their com community. Uh, we have um, a UN biosphere that's situated here in Western Port because of the ecological and environmental significance of Western Port Bay. Um, they, you know, were really concerned about it. Our council, which... Um, was part of the actual process for a long time, so we never really quite understood where they where they stood. But once the material was out there for everyone to look at, uh, they had a really look, good long analysis of that material, and the Mornington uh, uh, Shire Council came on board a hundred percent in saying that this project should not go ahead. It was inconsistent with the values of the community. It was inconsistent with the environmental safeguards that we need for Western Port Bay. And so we built this really broad coalition, and I think that's been really, really important. Of course, you know, there may still be many people in Melbourne listening to your show that were unaware of this. Um, and, you know, that, that's the sort of situation we're in. Of course, we did a lot of this under COVID, which made it even more difficult because, of course, we were part of Greater Melbourne down here. We couldn't move beyond five kilometres. And so um, some of our campaigning was certainly stymied uh, when we were all in lockdown together. But even then, this process went on. So um, just in, in a nutshell, the, the, sorry, the planning minister, Minister Wynne, did agree back in 2018 that... This was a project that did need uh, what's called an ES or an environmental effects statement, which is our principal environmental process for projects like this. And then uh, the proponents, they put together something like 11,000 pages of, of materials trying to justify this project. Uh, we were given access to that um, at the beginning of July, and then we have from July until close to the end of August to not only try and read all this material but to analyse it and then pull it apart, identify the flaws, the emissions, the fundamental issues with the project and uh, put uh, our submission together. 
that was an open process. So thousands of people actually put submissions in. In fact, it was the biggest uh, public uh, participation in a process like this ever held. There were over 6,000 submissions, all done under COVID, uh, that went in. And, of course, 99.9% of those were against this proposal. Um, I could I could go on. We then had hearings, um, and, and they took part, place in our second major lockdown in October last year, right through leading up to Christmas. So we had 10 weeks of hearings. That was all done via Zoom. Uh, and so that in itself was something that most of us have never really participated in. Uh, but it did go extremely smoothly. It was a very harrowing process, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, because AGL, you know, put their top-notch lawyers onto this and um, it was, you know, really adversarial. Uh, we had over 400, 500 uh, individuals and organisations that actually made submissions to the hearing. So they appeared before the um, IAC and they gave their evidence as to why um, essentially the process, you know, the project should not go ahead. So it's been, you know, really three years of fighting this and it's just building and building and building. Um, but at the end of the day, it was the process that we had to try and win on and, uh, and that's what we have achieved. Well, can I just ask, Jane, it seems to me that pumping out half a billion litres a day of chlorinated water that's colder than the surrounding water would mean that there would be plumes of this chlorinated water working its way in various directions away from this floating storage and regasification unit and kind of nuking the seafloor and then... My understanding is chlorine is a gas, so it would kind of percolate and find its way up and sort of spread right through the water, turning that whole area into a like a giant open-air swimming pool. Uh, well, And you're across the water from French Island. It's near Phillip Island with the penguins. Like the, As you point out, this whole area is really pristine. Well, uh, I know. It, it's, in, it's insane. I mean, when you think <laughs> about it, you, you've put it so precisely, Jacob, and, of course, it was, in fact, those environmental effects. You know, we we argued against the project on so many different levels. Obviously, the principal one uh, was these environmental effects in relation to the impact um, on the ecosystems from the both the intake of the water, killing off everything that's, that's coming into the ship, into the FSRU, and then uh, spewing out this dead toxic chlorinated water. Um, and if, if um, you examine the Minister's decision on this, it is essentially that which was seen as to be the most um, significant um, and overriding uh, environmental impact um, and one which AGL really could not... Um, they had, you know, that despite everything they tried to do to say it would all be OK... Um, they couldn't produce evidence um, to say that it would because, you know, anyone that's ever been in a chlorinated pool knows why you put chlorine in a pool. Um, it is to kill the bacteria, to kill anything that's, that's in the pool. And so um, this is what the Minister found, that the, the discharge of the chlorine and chlorine-produced oxidants 
which are toxic to the environment, uh, were too dangerous, that the change in the water temperature was too dangerous, um, and that the loss of the plankton and the fish and the entrainment of the, of the, if, if you like, the underpinning ecosystem of the marine environment, uh, was, was too significant. And the thing is that, uh, as again, I think some of your listeners would know, I mean, uh, Western Port Bay is internationally recognised. It's, it's a Ramsar environment. Uh, there are only nine of these in Australia. And so the fact that something as dangerous and dirty and as toxic as this could be even considered to go into such an environment, um, it really is extraordinary. And the fact that we had to fight it tooth and nail <laughs> to ensure that it didn't happen, um, I think also sort of says something. But look, the outcome, it, it, it is an outcome which is beyond our dreams. I mean, many of your listeners may well have been involved in EES processes and they are extremely difficult for communities. They really are. I mean, we put it that, you know, we were up against, we were the David against the Goliath and, um, and somehow we... You know, we, we, we won. Uh, but we won on the sign. You know, we went, we employed experts to, because uh, we ourselves, we're just community members, you know, we don't have that level of expertise. And, of course, in that 11,000 pages that they threw at us, you know, it was full of all sorts of material that, you know, is way over my head and, and so many others in the community that, that were fighting us. So we had to find funds to employ experts to employ our own lawyers um, to fight this in these hearings that I said um, happened late last year. Um, and, and that's one of the other things. So it, it wasn't just that, you know, all of our community was on side with us, but people in the community found different sort of almost organic ways to help support us. So in the middle of this lockdown, um, you know, a group of people got together um, you know, they, they'd come to us and they understood the importance of fighting this proposal. And they got together, um, artists and they had an online auction of, of artists who, some of many of whom have a really close connection with Western Port. Others didn't, but they certainly support, you know, trying to ensure that the environment is protected. And so, it was incredible, really some really famous artists, others not so famous, and some of these artists donated their work, the people putting this together donated their time, and they raised a lot more money than we were collecting in buckets, if I could say that, and that helped pay for the legals that we had to do um, to, to fight this. And so, you know, that was part of the sort of organic process that uh, was just so... I mean, it's really so heartening for those of us that were sort of almost working on this full time, just to know how much support there was, how much that what we were doing is what our community wanted. And if I could say also, I mean, it's for all Victorians. I mean, mm. Western Port Bay is a public asset. It belongs to the people of Victoria. And it certainly shouldn't have been polluted for the profit of one company. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been an extraordinary experience. Um, really heartening in terms of the fact that there are so many people out there um, who believe in the same things that we do, who are prepared to fight for those. And often they don't win. I mean, that's the reality. Um, but 
In this case, I think the minister, the um, independent advisory committee that was appointed to go through not only all the submissions, but, you know, sat before the hearings. Um, and they certainly listened to all the evidence and they, they weren't uh, fooled by the spin of AGL. Um, and I think that, that's sort of saying something. Um, I obviously haven't had time to read their reports, two volumes. Uh, as I said, our feet really haven't hit the ground. We obviously have to go through it in a lot of detail, pull out, you know, the salient points and, um, and analyse the outcome from that point of view. But that's for another day. Right. Well, thank you very much, um, Jan. Um, you've given like a really sort of good sort of overview because I think, you know, um, one of the things we also like to cover is, you know, we, it is actually worth getting a bit of reflection and a sense of the campaign's experiences, which I all thought was very good. Um, we're running a bit out of time now, so I just wanted to guess, do you have any guess final comments you'd like to make? Uh, I really just want to say that for everyone that, um, you know, believes in protecting the environment, that's deeply concerned about climate change, um, you know, ours was one battle, if you like. It was a really, I mean, it was a very significant win. Uh, but obviously, you know, there's so much more that we need to keep doing. And we will certainly keep doing that simply because we've won this. You know, that we want to make sure that Western Port's protected, if you like, for all time. Um, and obviously use our experience to help others. Right. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Yeah. Con- congratulations, Jane. It's, uh, thank really you. Look, it, no, it's, it's, it's everyone. I mean, I, I, I this was the most collective effort. I've never been involved in a process like this before. Um, and it, it, it's, it's extraordinary. It, it really was. And so for every single person that supported what we were trying to achieve, for every person that was part of the process, um, and for every person out there that thinks this is a good outcome, um, we thank you because, you know, without all of that support, uh, we never would have got over the line. Word. All right. Well, um, <laughs> thank, all right. Um, thank you very much uh, um, for, for being on our program. And, um, yeah, I think congratulations on all the work um, that your campaign has done and congratulations again for, I think, this um, amazing victory. Thank you very much, Jacob, and thank you so much for having me on the program. Hi. Okay. Thank you. All the best. All Cheers. the best. So, yes, Jane Carnegie there from uh, the Save Western Port campaign group, who have been victorious in thwarting the uh, proposed AGL floating storage regasification unit and associated pipeline, which would have nuked Western Port. So, yeah, good riddance to bad rubbish. Okay, um, I'll just play a quick announcement and we'll just go have a very quick activist calendar. I just think there's just a few events, small events that I just want to um, plug quickly and then we'll go on to our next interview. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Freesia 855 AM. Freesia, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. 
on 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio, um, and it is now actually about time for the activist calendar, but it's going to be a bit short this time because our last interview went a bit over, although I think it was all worthwhile. Um, just to note, um, there is going to be a National Day of Action, um, Stop Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, Black Lives Matter, 30 years since the Royal Commission, still no justice. So this is going to be happening in all the kind of major cities on Saturday, April the 10th, and the rally in Melbourne is going to be at 1pm Saturday at the Parliament, um, near, um, at the Parliament House in Spring Street in the city. So, yeah, definitely recommend. It's been called by Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance, so if you go on their Facebook page, you can get the kind of Facebook event. On Thursday, April the 15th, um, there's going to be a public forum organised by Socialist Alliance and Green Left behind the um, queue in Burma. And that's going to be on Thursday, April the 15th, 6.30pm at the Red and Orange Room Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street, opposite the Queen Victoria Market in the city. And um, yeah, the event's being organised by Green Left. <coughs> And then there's the webinar, The Time Has Come, Freedom from Abdul Ochlon, and that's going to be happening on Friday, April the 16th, um, 7pm. And so that's probably something we'll feature as an interview for the following week, um, because we haven't cut any coverage of this sort of solidarity campaign. And just two last things, um, the daily refugee protests are still happening. Um, they're happening at 5pm 5 5 every weekday and 3pm on weekends. And you can see Stand Together for Justice for more information. Um, the McCormack workers are still on strike and you can visit the picket at 63 to 71 Fairbank Road, Clayton South. And yeah, just one last sort of note. Um, um, we, we did an interview about it earlier, but the Marxism conference is also happening obviously right now over the Easter weekend. So, yeah, uh, that's That is at the up. Meat Market, North Melbourne, 3 Blackwood Street. Not to be confused with Meatworks, Melbourne uh, South. Meat Market, North Melbourne. It's near University of Melbourne. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, sorry for the shortened actors calendar, but we're just going to play a quick announcement and then we'll be moving on to our next interview. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. OK, 
Okay, you're listening to um, Green Left um, Radio, and on the line we have Simone Casey, um, who is a research associate with the Future Social Service Institute with RMIT University, and um, she was also previously, I think she was also previously um, a policy advisor as a, um, for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, although she can probably correct me on that, and she's recently written an article on the impacts of of the ending of job seeker and job keeper. Um, so yeah, good morning, um, Simone. Yeah, good morning, Jacob, and good morning, 3CR listeners. Okay, so just to get on to um, my first kind of question, um, in your kind of article, um, you kind of talk about, I guess, to kind of start off this kind of discussion. What can you tell us about? Yes, the kind of social impacts of the ending of JobKeeper and the reduction of JobSeeker payment rates, which is happening as of yesterday, well, well, the day before yesterday, really, and term, and of course, in terms of individuals' income and the kind of social in- effects associated with this. Yeah, um, well, there's actually three major things to take account of. So the article that we, uh, my colleague and I, Alicia Alston, um, publishing the conversation was really um, looking at um, the impact of the policy changes on um, the removal of JobKeeper and the reduction in JobSeeker um, on rentals. But the third um, policy change is the um, revocal of the rental moratoriums as well. So what we were concerned about modelling in that article was really the impact of these policy changes on um, some of the critical things that happen to people when they're in poverty, um, which includes rental stress. And um, people in rental stress often end up homeless because they, you know, obviously can't afford to um, pay the rent. So we were very concerned about the impact of all three of these changes, the temporary um, increases in payments, um, the JobKeeper um, wage subsidy and um, the revocation of the moratoriums on rent, um, which all happened in the last two weeks. So it's a pretty dire situation for people who are not able to get uh, enough work. Yeah. And um, I want to kind of hear, I guess, because um, you just mentioned, I guess, the housing kind of moratorium, um, yeah. well, the basically the ending of the kind of eviction um basically because I think pre- um, previously there was a ban on, I guess, evictions. And I guess I want to kind of hear a bit more detail about some of the issues relating to rental affordability and the rolling back of these schemes because it's sort of, it's a bit interesting, just as just a bit of a personal anecdote, as someone who's just started, recently looked for a house recently, it appears there we're in this, there's this sort of bizarre situation in the um, inner city where, um you know, there is actually a lot of places um, available in terms of how in terms of housing, but of course, there is obviously what what is it going to mean in terms of the rolling back of these schemes if people are not able to afford to rent places? Yeah, so I guess it depends what kind of housing you're looking for in the rental market. So there has been a change because of COVID, especially in the inner cities in like apartments. Um, because all the overseas students, uh, um, you know, who usually attend the universities have gone back ho- um, home. So, um, so, but my um, colleague Liz, who does a lot of work around um, modelling rental affordability, hasn't really noticed um, a great change 
um, across the city. So, and even in regional areas, there hasn't been a major reduction in rent across the board, especially in the kind of share house market, which tends to be um, sort of, you know, in the middle regions around the cities. Um, so there hasn't been really enough of a, a reduction in rents um, to make housing affordable to most people on low incomes. Um, so there, you know, there's obviously some variation in the rental market, as, as I said, but it's not really looking um, like it's got much easier. And before um, before COVID, we had already been doing modelling which showed that rentals were unaffordable um, in most capital cities for people on low incomes. And by people on low incomes, we were looking at both people on um, surviving on um, what's now job seeker payment. Um, but also on, you know, people on casual, low-paid casual jobs, which, you know, students, um, you know, people who are uh, employed and underemployed. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know if that aligns with your own experience, Jacob, in trying to find somewhere to rent around inner Melbourne. Um, be interested to hear your feedback on that. Oh, I think everything you said is completely fine, actually. My experience is just a bit particular um, because it was only I was only looking for... A place for me and my partner so obviously two bedroom apartments are all the vogue um yeah. and there's more available than people looking for them yeah. and we've all and yeah. that relates to obviously all the kind of reasons listed but obviously rental affordability is still a major issue and i imagine yeah. with the rolling back of job seeker and everything it's just going to get worse yeah and you're in um actually like one of the more fortunate situations because you're in a couple which means that you're both depending on what your income is, you may both be eligible for CRA and during the, if you were on unemployment payments, for example, during the um, COVID period, you would have both been receiving the supplements. And although the supplements decreased over the period of, you know, the COVID, there were like three changes in the amount um, before they were finally withdrawn. This week, um, you would have both, you know, had that income supplemented, but a single person um, or a single parent would be the only person in that household who would have been receiving either a supplement or a CRA. And so one of the things that we pointed out in our um, analysis in the conversation was that single-parent families were had been particularly um, badly off. And um, some analysis that I've seen from um, my friend, Liz, as I say, who, who did the analysis, um, the statistical analysis, has shown that... Um, more single parents rent as a proportion of the population than um, other people on um, job seeker payments. Um, so, yeah, so they're doing it tough. And um, I want to go into, get, I guess, a bit of a kind of discussion around JobKeeper because in your article, you, um, I guess just to make a general kind of comment first, I mean, one of the contexts is, is the media has kind of reported quite often that um, JobKeeper has been a lifeline for many jobs, um, and especially, you know, the nature of our our capitalist kind of system. There's like, the, you know, basically for businesses to kind of survive, they need to basically turn a profit. And, of course, the effects of this pandemic has kind of meant um, that there were certain businesses that have been shown to not be profitable in the kind of particular post kind of pandemic kind of context. But of course, the implementation of JobKeeper meant that for some of these jobs in that category, it was basically kind of a lifelong for these jobs to even still exist. And of course, now that JobKeeper is being cut, 
um, there's estimates that thousands of jobs will be lost forever when JobKeeper ends. And I guess what has your kind of research and what you've kind of observed shown in terms of this? Oh, uh, well, you're absolutely right. Like JobKeeper did prop up um, some businesses that would have folded anyway, um, and zombie businesses, I think they call them. So there's a turnover of businesses, you know, generally have a life cycle of surviving or not surviving, and so they were kind of, you know, um, I guess kept in hibernation. Um, but also there, because of the economic shock um, with the shutdowns, and the way that um, population is redistributing the way it works so that, you know, more people are working back in their homes, then that business activity has not returned to the cities. So, um, you know, there's businesses across the cities in um, hospitality, you know, coffee places, etc., that just are not viable. So um, The Economist's Treasury, they're expecting nationally around 250,000 um, jobs will go because of the um, withdrawal of JobKeeper um, and Melbourne it will be because we had like the slowest economic recovery um, and probably one of the most significant changes in patterns of working um, at least half of those jobs um, will be lost in Melbourne um, so that's another you know maybe 100, 120,000 people um, hitting that unemployment um, queue, um, you know, looking for work, competing for work with all the other people who are already unemployed. So we'll see a, um, probably a spike in unemployment. Um, hopefully those people um, will get um, jobs again easily. But what that means for other people who haven't been able to find jobs easily uh, is that they go back to, to the back of the queue, which is the problem that we had with long-term unemployment. Um, it's kind of a self-perpetuating problem that the most recently unemployed do get work more easily than the long-term unemployed and the long-term unemployed become even um, longer-term unemployed and, uh, you know, it affects their employability. So we need strategies to assist um, job creation for the long-term unemployed as well as, um, you know, things that uh, um, inject more money into the economy. Um, Simone, have you looked at the uh, idea of a job guarantee and would you have any thoughts around that type of policy? Um, well, it's, there's a kind of uh, quite a few different models of uh, job guarantee that I've seen around and certainly various places I've been involved in have advocated for that. So um, you're right, I was a um, policy advisor at the Unemployed Workers' Union for a while, but um, that's been a year or so since I've been in that role and... The Unemployed Workers Union were um, looking at a um, new deal, Green New Deal, which was a, um, you know, youth guarantee in uh, renewable sort of um, uh, sectors, creating um, jobs growth in those sectors and providing jobs for people. There's also a long-term unemployed um, job guarantee idea around, and there's also the idea of a youth jobs guarantee and I think any kind of job guarantee for people who are, who need one um, is worth looking at. Um, I've worked in this sector around employment programs for a long time and I just, I'm just like you just have to be very careful about the detail because I wouldn't be supporting anything that was a mandatory program like we have at the moment work for the doll. Mm. I would only be supporting programs that provide people with a livable wage um, that's 
you know, benchmarked against um, industrial agreements in terms of um, what people are being paid. Um, but yes, you know, we are at a stage now where uh, in policy terms we need to look at the range of options that are available to us and we need to have the political will to invest in those options. And what we're seeing um, at the moment is a government that's letting everything return to the market to market generate these jobs. And so it's a very concerning time for people who haven't been successful in that, you know, market framework. And I do believe that there's a need to look at um, that problem. Okay, so we're kind of running a bit out of time, but I'll give our opportunity to kind of ask the last kind of plan question, and you kind of went into it kind of already. Um, I kind of want to hear you um, in terms of like all the kind of social impacts. Um, what are some of the things that the government could be doing? And, of course, you already alluded to some of that in response to Zane's question before. And, of course, after that, any kind of final comments you kind of like to make? Well, really... Um you know, it's, it, this is a question, we've, we're focusing on rental affordability, but we need not forget that not everybody um, is in rental. Some people have mortgages um, and they are in stress as well. So really the options um, that have been canvassed by many other people, like it's been a, a cacophony of um, voices saying we need to lift the base rate of unemployment payments above the poverty line. Um, we could also increase um, Commonwealth rent assistance, um, and we also, um, in the short term, need to look at things like grants um, to people who are in poverty to help them get through to pay their rent for six months. Um, and then over the longer term, increase the supply of social housing. I mean, they're the, they're the most immediate responses that um, we need. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Simone. Are there just in, um, any final comments you'd like to make? No, I think, um, you know, anybody who's listening to the news, you'll have seen a lot of um, material around around about this. Um, so, you know, just keep your eyes open and eyes and ears open and um, keep on thinking about and, and contributing to the conversation about the reforms we need. Sweet. All right. Thanks heaps yeah. for um, talking with us, Simone. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, um, you're listening to um, into just talking to Simone Casey, um, who is a research associate with RMIT University, about the kind of having a bit of a discussion about the kind of social impacts of the rolling back of JobKeeper and the reduction in JobSeeker, and it's like you know, very, I think it's a very terrible kind of situation um, that the government is is doing. Um, you know, the government got all these kind of kudos for implementing the kind of JobKeeper um, program and, of course, increasing the JobSeeker rate. But, of course, the JobSeeker rate, as we've kind of discussed numerous times, is still not even sufficient enough for um, people who are unemployed. Um, and, in fact, they should be entitled to a wage, um, JobSeeker benefits, that is above the poverty line and in fact it should just i argue that it just should be the old rate that it was imp- that was implemented during covid of 550 a week mm. and um and it, and of course yeah um going on back, going on to the guess just the last thing I'll kind of add on the job keeper discussion the job keeper was a you know, while also a nice idea was always also a very problematic one as well because it was essentially mm. a big handout 
to, it essentially has been implemented as a big handout for bosses. And of course, lots of shareholders, etc., received massive amounts in JobKeeper payments. Mm. And of course, JobKeeper always excluded sections of workers, such as international students, um, people who are not permanent residents. Um, and it's always been a program that I think has been fraught with issues. Mm. But anyway, we're getting, I guess, now to um, the end of the program. I would like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and, yeah, keep it, um, have a good Easter weekend and we'll all kind of see you next Friday. Yes, and I'll just give you a quick plug. Uh, Matt Ward has his uh, monthly uh, album roundup, 10 new albums from Strong Women and Woke Men. So check that out at greenleft.org.au. Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio. This brings up This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap.